Reading in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children 
and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Good morning. We believe that there is power simply in the reading of God's Word when we gather together. So as a church, that's why we've committed to reading through the Gospel of Matthew together in our assembly throughout this year. And I know that was a big section of Scripture. Pastor Gene, thank you for walking us through that. But it's good to jump back into the Gospel of Matthew. You're going to want to hold your place here in Matthew 18. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. And it's a long chapter, but we're going to try to cover the entire chapter because it's one discourse from your Lord. I want you to see how all these incredible truths in Matthew 18 fit together for us this morning. Now, a couple things before we begin. Matthew 18 is a vital chapter for a local church like ours. It's a vital chapter for any church, but for us in particular, this is a vital teaching for us this morning. Secondly, there is more here than I can cover this morning. So Wednesday night, behind the message, we gather some other things going on on Wednesday nights for our students, our kids, study groups you can be a part of. One is called Behind the Message. We'll go further into Matthew 18. Come join us. Love to see you there. Now, context of Matthew is always huge as we walk through this gospel. Remember, point of the gospel of Matthew is this, that Jesus Christ is the promised king. He's the one. At the same time, we see in the Gospel of Matthew this king, by grace, by trust in him, we can be made new, we can have a new heart, we can become a new creation by faith and trust in him. And at the same time, those who place faith in this king, you're given a new family. You're introduced into the people of God, part of the body of Christ. At TCBC, our church, we say it's something like this. We have an identity statement. We used to say that all the time. We hadn't used it as much as we should maybe. But here's, here's what we say at TCBC. If you've been here a while, you should know this. This is on the final exam for you, all right? We are a redeemed community of Jesus followers 
on mission together. We're not a loose group of individuals who just happen to come together every now and then for a Sunday morning event and just go about our life. If you are born again, and particularly if you are a member of this local church, that's a reality for every one of us. We are a redeemed community, bought with the blood of Christ. Amen? You've been purchased. We are not merely individuals. We are in fellowship with one another. We are members of one another, Romans says in chapter 12. And we have a mission assigned to us by the King. This fellowship that we share, we, we have the same Savior. We have the same Spirit. We share the same mission. We share the same pursuit of Christ's likeness together. We have the same responsibility to one another. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So in this, when you come to Matthew 18, here's why I want you to know this, this passage is so important for us. I, I, my wife knows this. We've talked about this. I've labored in this chapter for the last two weeks. There is so much here for us to pursue. And can I just be real honest with you from the beginning? There is so much room for us to grow as a church in Matthew 18. One commentator said of Matthew 18, it is the single greatest discourse our Lord gives on life among his redeemed people. What does Jesus say life is to be like among his redeemed people? Now, the, the epistles, when we get to Paul and Peter and John, they give us a whole lot of detail about the one another's and what life looks like in the body of Christ. Jesus here, this is one of your first teachings in the New Testament about some priorities among the people of God, his redeemed people. This is vitally important for us this morning. What does life look like among God's people? What are the characteristics of, we'll just call it this redeemed community, the church, this kingdom community, Jesus may refer to it that way. What are some characteristics that are to be present, that we're to be pursuing among us as God's redeemed, purchased, set apart, ransomed people? We're going to take a look at that this morning. So again, after that, we're going to Walk through the Lord's table, the Lord's supper together. Incredible morning. And I think, I think we take seriously what's in Matthew 18. You're going to approach the Lord's table differently this morning. We'll see what the Word of God has for us today. Verse 1. I'm going to walk you through a few of these. We'll have some big ideas as we flow along. And then go into the Lord's supper together. Verse 1. So at that time, the disciples of Jesus came to him and they were asking a question. <laughs> Interesting question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't know who asked that. It doesn't matter. My guess is Peter, but we'll see. It doesn't really tell us. And Jesus says, hold on. Let me set aright your understanding of even who is in the kingdom of heaven. He has to do this throughout the gospel of Matthew because in this culture of religiosity, in this culture of the Pharisees, there is this culture of achievement, of accomplishment, of status, of position. And they come to Jesus and say, all right, Lord, in your kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have the highest seat in your kingdom? And Jesus says he often does, turns it upside down. He says, you don't get it at all. He goes, he says, calling to him a little child. He puts this little child in the midst of them. 
Actually, the Gospel of Mark takes it a step further and says Jesus pulls this little child and puts him on his lap. So here's Jesus with this young child sitting on his lap and says, let me teach you about the kingdom of heaven. He teaches these disciples and those around. He says, verse 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn, there is a change of heart from this idea of accomplishment and status. There's a repentance that takes place in your heart. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never even see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He turns it upside down. What do you mean, Jesus? Again, in this culture that they, they prized accomplishment, they prized status, they prized position. Jesus said, turn and become like this child. That's the heart of a kingdom citizen. That's the heart of one who's part of this redeemed community. Now stop right there. You have to understand how the word child is used in this context and in this culture. If you think child is little innocent baby who's brought to him and oh how cute and cuddly that child is, that's not the point. Jesus is not talking about the innocence of children. Jesus is talking about as a child, and that culture saw it this way, children have accomplished nothing. <laughs> they have no status. They have nothing to bring to Jesus. They're not coming to Jesus telling him all they've done, all they've accomplished. They come empty-handed. They come with a childlike faith. They come in dependence. They're not toting their own accomplishments. They come in dependence and trusting him. Jesus says, that's the way you come to me. Don't come to me with your litany of your spiritual accomplishments. They're filthy rags before the holiness of God. You come empty-handed, Matthew 5, broken in spirit, poor in spirit. You got nothing. You come empty-handed. Jesus says that's the way you come. Big idea. Here's your first one quickly. A redeemed community demonstrates humble repentance and childlike faith. This is not childish faith. This is not immature faith that never grows into maturity. That's not what he's talking about. It's a faith that is deeply dependent and recognizes apart from the grace of God, I got nothing to bring to him. I'm totally dependent on him. So Jesus says that's who makes up this kingdom and community. They're characterized by a humble, broken repentance, characterized by this childlike, dependent faith. Now, Throughout the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to use this metaphor of children to refer to disciples of his. You and me, followers of Christ. This is not about how you treat kids. That's not the point. He uses this very soft language to refer to followers of his, how we relate to one another. That's the point of Matthew 18. So then the next question is this, all right, Lord, well, then how do the redeemed people of God relate to one another? He continues on. That's his point in this whole chapter, verse 5. Now, this is a heavy verse right here. I, I spent a lot of time on verse 5. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever then receives or welcomes, whoever welcomes, or, or even the idea of values, Whoever values one such child in my name receives me. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus said, as you think about how to relate to one another in this redeemed community called the church, the way you receive one another 
And the way you value one another, the word here again is welcome to bring into the way we deal and relate to one another in the same way you are treating and valuing Jesus that way. Wow. Well, Will that change the way we approach some of our petty arguments? Will that change the way we prize and value one another's pursuit of Christ-likeness and maturity and we lay aside our own preferences? Jesus is saying an incredible statement. I'm telling you, we could stop in verse 5. He says, the way you relate, the way you value, the way you treat one another, you're you're doing it to me. Because listen, by faith, every believer, we are in union with Jesus. His spirit resides within us. We are in union with one another because of the gospel of Christ by faith in him. He says, you receive one such child in my name, you're receiving me. Then he's going to go on, he says, verse 6, but in the same way, whoever causes one of these little ones, believers, It's just sweet language Jesus is using here, terms of endearment about his people. And you have to hear the shepherding heart of Jesus coming across of how much he cares for his people. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones, believers, who believe in me to sin. Stop right there for just a second. The word sin here is the word, or or to sin is is the word scandalon or stumbling block. He's saying this, whoever places in the lives of one another a stumbling block leading to sin. You say, I've heard that term before. I'm not really sure what stumbling block means. Well, you get the picture. I'm running a race. There's a big rock in my path. I stumble. I'm inhibited in my pursuit. The idea of a stumbling block is this, to lead away from truth. The idea of a stumbling block is to hinder our progress in faith. Stumble. The stumbling block itself may not even be sin, but it may lead to sin. It's a stumbling block. And he, listen to the language Jesus uses. Let me give you a quick illustration of a stumbling block so you get this. Remember when Peter and Jesus were having the dialogue and Jesus said, Look, I'm going to die. I'm going I'm to be persecuted. I, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter says, well, You're not going to die. <laughs> There's no way are you going to be crucified. You're the Messiah. What does Jesus come back to Peter and say? He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then what does he say? Matthew 16. You are a stumbling block to me. In other words, by your way of thinking, Peter, by even the words you're sharing with me, Peter, you're trying to pull me away from what's true. You're trying to hinder the work of God by what's, you're pulling me away from truth. You're a stumbling block to me. Jesus says it's a serious thing. When we, within the body of Christ, place stumbling blocks in, others, in one another's lives. Continue verse 5 and 6. He says it would be better for him, the one who causes the stumbling block, to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. What? Well, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. That's right. But he gets the point across. It's a serious thing within the body of Christ when we cause one another or lead one another into sin. Now, it gets more specific. Hang with me. Verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for the temptations to sin. 
Translation, woe to the world for stumbling blocks. I expect stumbling blocks in the world, right? Don't you? You should. Not the body of Christ. Woe to the world for its temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the one who is so insensitive to the lives of those around them and their responsibility to other members in the body of Christ. Woe to the one who the stumbling block comes or temptation comes. Verse 8, radical language here. This sounds familiar. Matthew 5, 6, we were there a few months ago. If your right hand or your foot causes you to sin, ready, cut it off. What does that mean? You deal decisively with stumbling blocks in your own life. You deal decisively with stumbling blocks in your own life. He's not, he's not finished. Verse 8, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. What's he saying? Here's the sec- next big idea I want you to hear. Put these two together. Here seems to be something Jesus is teaching us about how we operate as a redeemed community. Big idea. A redeemed community pursues holiness together. A redeemed community, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our pursuit of sanctification and in our pursuit of Christ's likeness, takes sin very seriously. Watch this. Not only in our own lives. He says, listen, there's stumbling blocks in your life and these things you're toying with and these things that are dragging you away and causing you to stumble and hindering your faith and all these things. Deal with those decisively. We said it a few months ago, say it this way, quit toying with sin. Quit toying with habits and things you want to get as close to as you can, either you're okay and they're hindering you in your faith. Ultimately, what's at stake is the glory of God and the renown of his church. It's one thing in this personal pursuit of holiness, deal decisively with stumbling blocks. Jesus doesn't stop there. It matters how we are helping one another pursue holiness. Within the body of Christ, it's not just, yes, I'm concerned with the stumbling blocks in my life. Within the body of Christ, he says this, woe to those who are a stumbling block. Woe to me if my mentality is, well, it's my choice, it's my decision, it's all about me. It doesn't matter how it affects the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what I'm pursuing. Wrong. We are members of one another. That's what it means to be a family. One of my children leaves a mess in the kitchen. They leave a mess on the kitchen floor, and I walk in, and I stumble over it, and I fall down. And they say, well, it was just my decision. It didn't affect you. It affected me because I fell all over the kitchen floor. We're part of a family. We are part of a family. Your pursuit of holiness matters. And watch this. If we get what Jesus is saying, you are equally concerned about your brothers and sisters' pursuit of holiness. And before the Lord, your heart will be, Father, yes, help me in this fight with sin that we have. Yes, I'm redeemed, and yes, you're going to take me home. But in the process, there's this fight with sanctification. Lord, give me the grace to fight. And Lord, give me the grace to help my brothers and sisters to fight. And Lord, give me the grace that if there's decisions and ways of thinking and habits and failure to pursue and ignoring and passivity or whatever it is, and it's causing one of these little ones 
my brothers and sister in Christ to stumble. Lord, make that evident to me. Because their walk, their holiness, their sanctification matters just as much as mine. That's the way the body of Christ is to operate. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're pursuing sanctification in this life by grace, by the power of the Spirit. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, listen to this verse. Hebrews says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, spur one another on, encourage one another day after day after day as long as it is called today. Or guess what will happen? Guess what can happen to the person who removes themselves from the fellowship of God's people and removes themselves from the encouragement and the admonition of God's people in the verse uh, 13 of Hebrews. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It goes in line with what Jesus is teaching in his concern and his care for his people. We are fighting for holiness and we are fighting for purity. I'm fighting in my own life by grace and I'm equally fighting in your life so that you or I will not fall into the deceitfulness and the lie of sin. See that? Now, all up to this point, it's really been a, a proactive pursuit of Christ's likeness together. We, we battle this together. We, we fight this together. It's proactive. I'm going to remove the stumbling blocks. I, I'm concerned about your walk. Then you come to verse 12 and it's now a reactive pursuit. Now hang with me and you'll see what I mean by that. See, if you're reading along in Matthew 18, you come to this story about the sheep, you go, what in the world does that have to do with what's going on? And you think Jesus is just kind of throwing out loosely connected stories here. No, 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 no. 12 through 13 is the heart of Jesus toward his people when they begin to stray. What is that? Jesus says, what do you think? Verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep, if sheep aren't very valuable to you, put something in there that's valuable to you, whatever it may be. In that context, in that culture, sheep, highly valuable. Man has a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who never went astray. Wait a minute, is this talking about lost people? No. In the context, this is talking about his sheep, those who know him. And within the body of Christ, those sheep that begin to stray and go down a path of independence, individualism, rebellion, sin. And he says the Father has immense care for his sheep who began to go astray. 
See, in this context, we don't think like a shepherd. Or maybe you think like a shepherd. I don't think like a shepherd. But if you're here in this context, you, you get it because everybody knew the role of a shepherd. They're thinking at the role of a shepherd. Is there some realities that when sheep begin to wander from the flock, they're in danger? The shepherd's job is to go at risk to himself, seek to restore them to the path of safety and flourishing. Because that little lamb, that little ewe lamb gets over there and they think they're going to greener pastures. And what they don't know is there's a wolf waiting to rip them to shreds. That little, she- uh, that little sheep can't see it, doesn't know it's there. All they know is grass is greener over there. i got to go, i got to get to it. And it's the shepherd's job to lovingly go at risk to himself and bring that little sheep back to a place of safety and flourishing. That's the point. Even (laughs) when the sheep doesn't even understand what he's trying to do, right? I'm sure that shepherd shows up and the sheep goes, well, I'm so glad you're here, Mr. Shepherd. I've been waiting for you to come and retrieve me and bring me back into the fold. Do you know what you get from the sheep? Bah! The work of a shepherd is often misunderstood. The work of one who is lovingly pursuing those who are headed down a path of destruction is often misunderstood. But the heart of the shepherd doesn't change. Here's your big idea. Ready? A redeemed community protects one another. Protecting of one another. There's a real battle with sin. There's a real battle with temptation. We protect one another. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father, Jesus says, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. If you want to do a word study on that word perish, this is not in the context of an unbeliever. The word perish there is likely not the idea of eternal destruction. It is the idea of spiritual devastation in this life. It is those, yes, who are redeemed, but because of their choices, they, they bring shipwreck to their faith in the sense of spiritual destruction in this life. And that shepherd is deeply concerned and will do whatever is necessary to go after that little sheep. Now, ready? Here's where it gets practical. And I might add, here's where it gets painfully practical for us, right? So, Heavenly Father, as a shepherd, how does he do that? How does he go after in love? And faithfulness to protect that little sheep that goes astray. In the context of what Jesus is teaching here, it all fits together. Well, he does it through his word. We know the word is quick and powerful, sharp as two-edged sword, goes after our heart, awakens us to our bad decisions, where way we're going. He does it through the spirit of God dwelling within us. Yes, bring conviction. Absolutely, we see that in scripture. But there's another way. How does the Father lovingly pursue us when we're going down a path like a little sheep and there's a wolf on the other side and we don't even know it how does he lovingly pursue us verse 15 ready here it is if your brother sins against you go and tell him go and tell him his fault between you and him alone I mean keep the circle small we'll talk about that in just a minute If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
Same context. How do we operate within the redeemed community? Here's your big idea coming out of that. A redeemed community practices church discipline when necessary according to Scripture. I didn't hear a lot of amens on that one, by the way. A redeemed community practices church discipline when necessary according to scripture say where'd you get that from I got it from verse 15 it's also repeated in our membership promises if you're a member of this church that's something that we promise to one another now let me stop here for just a minute and let's just own the elephant in the room here it is church discipline Pastor Mike, i got to be honest, that sounds like a real dirty word. That that even kind of makes me uncomfortable. Why? Well, maybe you've seen the whole concept abused. Maybe you've seen it in a church that it's practiced and the idea is merely to confront but never to restore. That's why you have to read all of Matthew 18 to put it together. Maybe you've never been in a church where it was even pursued at all. This idea of church discipline, of going after one another in love to restore the wandering sheep is a foreign thing to you. Let me give you a quick illustration. When I was a kid, say, oh, this is going to be great. When I was a kid growing up in Yanacoa County, occasionally I would cross the line that had been established and clearly set by my mother and father. I disobeyed. I was disrespectful. I was dishonest in our home. That's the three D's. All our kids know that. And that choice to cross the line in my home was met with imperfect, yet consistent, slightly painful, but never abusive, always under control rod of discipline. That's what happened in my home. Now, my mother and father were not perfect in it, but it became very clear that when a son crosses a line... Those loving parents loved me enough to say, we're not going to let you stay there. And we know enough of what the Bible says that it's our responsibility to use the rod of discipline to bring you back in, to bring you back. And as a loving son, I always said, thank you, mother and father, for being so loving to me. Now, Proverbs 13, 24 says, he who withholds the rod from his son... I'm sorry, he who withholds his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him diligently. Foolishness, Proverbs 22, is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Here's the takeaway really quick. A child, and I'm talking about young children, in the home who never receives loving, consistent, restorative discipline from parents... This will sting, is not being loved well. And in the same way, a church member who has identified with a body of believers and placed themselves under the authority of that body of believers and is never lovingly corrected, called to holiness, pursued when wayward and restored in radical forgiveness when they turn is not being loved well. Being loved well. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
Galatians 6.1, brethren, if anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Go, restore them. Seek for their restoration. Now really quickly, let me walk you through how this plays out in Jesus' teaching here. Big idea, let me remind you, redeemed community practices church discipline when necessary according to Scripture. Let me ask a few questions. According to what Jesus says here, who is to receive this kind of discipline that he's talking about? Well, verse 15 says, the sinning brother, the one who has sinned. A believer who is ensnared in a pattern of sin because of ignorance or willful disobedience to God's word. David Platt helps, he says this, the implication is that a brother or sister is continuing in a pattern of sin and refusing to turn from it. They are unrepentant. That's the key. We're not talking about bringing the hammer down for someone every time and every sin in their lives, but those who are in a pattern of unrepentant sin, they're going down a path of destruction. Is this person's pattern of sin toward me directly or an unrepentant pattern of sin in general? Answer, yes. Say, well, only if it's against me. No, no, no. It's brother or sister in Christ, member of this church family. They're headed down a path that you know is going to lead to their destruction. Go to them. Keep going. Who carries out this discipline, correction, admonishment in the body of Christ? Well, verse 15 again. If your brother sins, go to him. Implied you. <laughs> now let me, let, me get, let me get to this. Ready? There's a notion that church discipline in the church is only the responsibility of the elders. We have a role to play, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But according to this, church discipline begins at the level of one-on-one relationships and is the responsibility of every member. Do you get that? I didn't get any amens either. I got to owe me, maybe. I don't. Church discipline, loving Consistent, restorative, every member. Third question, what's the purpose? This is key. Verse 15, if he listens, you have gained your brother. Circle that word gain. Gain is an economic word. It was originally used of the accumulation of wealth in the sense of monetary commodities. What does that mean? Here it refers to gaining something back of extreme value. (laughs) You hear that? I meditate on this verse for a while, trying to pray through this. brings me to tears. When you go after your brother or sister in Christ, you're trying to bring something back of great value. You've gained brother or sister who is headed down a path of destruction. John MacArthur says the purpose of church discipline is the spiritual restoration of fallen members and the consequent strengthening of the church and the glorifying of the Lord. It's for the glory of the Lord. The goal of church discipline then is not to throw people out of the church, to feed the self-righteous pride of those who administer the discipline. It is not to embarrass people or exercise authority or power in some unbiblical manner. The purpose is to restore a sinning believer to holiness and bring them back into a right and pure and healthy relationship within the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. What does this look like? Quickly. You say, you're about out of time. I know. Hang with me. Verse 15. What does this look like? Walk you through these steps. Jesus gets painfully practical here. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, 
Go and tell him. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. Verse 15, there's four steps laid out in these five verses here. Going to quickly give you these. Can't go into detail. We'll talk more Wednesday night. Here it is. Step one, go privately. You go to the person. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is not a matter for social media. It's not even a matter for the prayer list at church. When we realize a brother or sister is continuing in a pattern of unrepentant sin, we go to the person. We go in humble self-examination first. Jesus teaches this, Matthew 7. You go back and read it on your own. Before you go to pull the speck out of your brother's eye, take the big old timber out of your own eye. You go in humble self-examination before the Lord. You go avoiding gossip and slander. We will find ourselves in sin if we are talking more about a brother's fault than talking to the brother about their fault. That's a good place for an amen right there. I just, I'm guilty. You're guilty. Go privately. Lovingly pursue your brother as a shepherd going after a wayward sheep that he loves. To restore to the place of safety and fruitfulness. Secondly, what happens if they don't listen? Step two, go as a group. But if he does not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along with you. It's a pattern of Deuteronomy 19. A matter is confirmed with the testimony of two or three witnesses. Take a few with you. Take members of the life group. That's why it's so important to be in a community with one another. Take some people who care, know this brother. They, they see it too. You're going you're to enlarge the circle slightly here. And here's what happens. It's no longer one shepherd, following the analogy, going after the wayward sheep. Now you have several. Going after the wayward sheep. What if they don't listen? Step three, tell the church. So, wow, are you kidding me? In 2021, you'd do something like that? Listen. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen. And by the way, watch this. Look at the escalation. First he, he, first he would not listen. Now he refuses to listen. So what you're seeing is a progression over time of even a deeper hardening. This is not a two or three day situation. This may go on for weeks and months before it gets to step three. If you're trigger happy and it's one day and you say, man, we're ready to go before the church, you missed the whole point. If he refuses to listen. Tell it to the church. This is a refusal to listen. Is clear, I'm sorry, the person's refusal to listen is clear over a period of time. Church elders are likely involved at this point. The person is made aware prior to this happening with the body of Christ. You say, what's the point of that? Well, now you don't just have one shepherd pursuing the wayward sheep. You don't just have two or three. You've got a whole body of believers. And the interaction with that believer is to be, what are you doing, man? We love you. You've gotten way from the flock. There's a wolf around the corner. Do you know this path is leading you to destruction? 
said, well, if they don't listen. Well, Jesus gives a fourth step, and he says, treat as an unbeliever. This person's conduct over a period of time has revealed, or at least is indicating they're an unbeliever. You don't know their heart, but Jesus says, look, you, you begin to treat them as an unbeliever. Verse 15, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? If a sinning brother refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be ostracized from the fellowship. That's a harsh word. Jesus' use of these terms doesn't mean that the church is to treat these people badly. It simply means that when a professing believer refuses to repent, the church is to treat him as if he were outside the fellowship. He doesn't get to enjoy all the blessings of fellowship because he's pushed against the fellowship and the counsel of the fellowship and he's removed himself out from under the protection of that fellowship. And in a way, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with that sinning believer, he says, let him go. And let the course of their sin run. Why? Ultimately for their restoration. See that? Biblical example, again, you look it up, 1 Corinthians 5. There was an instance where this occurred with a believer in that church. Went through those steps, came to the point where Paul said, remove him from the fellowship. He cannot enjoy the blessings of fellowship anymore. Doesn't mean we're mean to him. We're just going to treat him as an unbeliever. To not give him the, to not deceive him to think he's still acting as a believer because he's not why for restoration's sake now quickly pastor mike does this ever happen at tcbc let me just be as honest with you as i can again i i told you i've been wrestling with this passage for two weeks and wearing me out (laughs) this is a pursuit in our church These steps from one-on-one confrontation to group correction and all the things that Jesus has talked about here, at times is practiced, yes. But from step one to step four, as Jesus lays it out, I want to say this as one of your elders and one of the members of this church, I, you, and we have massive room to grow. I'll just own it. We have massive room to grow with our perspective of how important this is. This is Jesus' first teaching of the way the church is to love and relate and care and pursue for one another. We're to pursue this faithfully. You say, well, Pastor Mike, this seems to be a potential stumbling block in the church. You start getting in people's business and airing people's laundry, if you will, in a covenant community. That seems to be a stumbling block to me. Listen, a stumbling block in the church by obeying what the Lord of the church calls his people to do? Here's the stumbling block. Is when we in our pride and indifference do not love one another enough to go after one another and keep us from the stumbling of sin and the deception and the deceitfulness of sin. That's a stumbling block. Finally, don't have time to go over all this. Verse 18, Jesus says, this is of such importance. I, you have the promise of my authority. You can read that when you do this. Verse 20, as you pursue this, you have the promise of my presence. Where two or three are gathered together there, there I am in the midst. And finally, we'll close with this and we're done. We're going to the Lord's Supper. 
A church can't be in balance and be healthy and be pursuing church discipline that we just talked about and not at the same time exercise lavish forgiveness. They go together. That's why Jesus ends the chapter this way. Uh, really quick, Peter, I'm thankful for Peter. Verse 21, he comes up, he asks the same question. In fact, the team can come on up and just begin to play. We're going to move into our time of Lord's Supper. Peter comes up and he says, Lord, all right, I hear all that. But Lord, let's just be real practical. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, how, how much forgiveness do we give to this person who sins and then they're restored? How, how much forgiveness is there here? Jesus comes back, or Peter says, seven times? By the way, the rabbis in that day, they taught three. Three is gracious. Peter said, seven. I'm going to double what the rabbis teach. Jesus said, you don't get it at all. I say seven times seven, infinite, lavish scandalous grace to that wayward brother who turns and comes back. There's this forgiveness, infinite, lavish forgiveness. And Jesus demonstrates it with a story of the landowner who had a servant, and the servant comes, and he owed an infinite debt to that landowner. And as he pled for forgiveness of that debt, it was, it was just infinite debt, a number we can't even calculate. That landowner in mercy and kindness forgave him his debt completely and released him of that infinite debt he could never pay. That same slave went out, and when the first person crossed him and he bumped into that owed him pocket change, he said, you owe me that pocket change. If you don't give me that pocket change, I'm going to haul you off to jail, so to speak. In other words, that person who had been given lavish unconditional forgiveness from his master did not grant it to others here's the point a redeemed community forgives one another unconditionally lavishly as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus you, if you're a believer, have been forgiven an infinite amount. You will never be sinned against or offended even close to how you have offended and sinned against the great king. And you have been forgiven in Christ. We have the capacity in Christ to pursue church discipline to pursue one another, to protect one another, to pursue holiness, to fight for these things for the glory of God. And then we have the capacity in Christ to demonstrate and practice lavish, unconditional forgiveness in Christ as we have been forgiven. Amen? Bow your heads. Prepare for the time taking the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a gift given by the Lord Jesus to his church. It's an ordinance.